Well, turn with me in your Bible to Revelation 20 again, and uh, we're going to continue with our look at the millennial reign of Christ. Because we have God's Word on the future, we do not have to worry or fret about how things will all turn out. We have the more sure word of testimony and prophecy. We have the end of the book. We have uh, God's Word about the future. We can count on these events just as certainly as if they have already taken place. And it really doesn't matter what world leaders do. It doesn't matter what the Democrats the Republicans do or what the terrorists do or what the Muslims do or what the experts say about the economy. God has already revealed to us in His Word how everything is going to turn out. And in the 20th chapter of Revelation, we have three main issues dealt with. We see the millennium, we see the fate of the devil, and we see the two resurrections. The millennium is the key element of this chapter, and the first seven verses uh, contain the phrase 1,000 years six times. And yet, this reference to the thousand-year reign and kingdom has created a lot of controversy. It has been widely debated. Is it a literal 1,000 years, or is it figurative? Will Christ return before or after this thousand years? And is it on heaven? Is it in heaven or on earth? And the answers to these questions usually depend on how a person interprets the Bible. If you take a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, you end up with a premillennial perspective. And the real issue at stake is whether God ever promised such an earthly kingdom. And if He did, will He keep His promise literally? Of course, my answer is that there can be no doubt at all as to the scriptural evidence for the coming kingdom of Christ. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Bible that predict an actual earthly kingdom ruled by the Son of God and bringing ultimate fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. There are more prophecies in the Bible about this kingdom and its significance to the believing Jew and ultimately for the church than any other theme in prophecy. The very heart of Old Testament prophecy is the coming of the Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom over which He will rule the nations from the throne of David. And really the only important detail that the book of Revelation adds is the length of this rule. I mean, John really doesn't give a lot of details about the kingdom here. We find those elsewhere in Scripture, but John tells us that the length of the kingdom will be a thousand years. But it is the pen of the Old Testament prophets 
that have really whetted the appetite of every heaven-bound traveler over the centuries. For example, they tell us of a kingdom where there will be peace and tranquility, where men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and learn war no more. The Bible tells us the wolf will lie down with the lamb and a man will be a child when he is a hundred years old. There will be perfect justice for all. The wicked will be punished immediately and the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God. We see that in the book of Isaiah. Well, we started this chapter last time and we almost got through the first three verses. But we've read it. We read it twice last week, so we're not going to read it tonight. But I want to go straight to the details tonight. And uh, last time we began by looking at the binding of Satan. We started on this last time, but we didn't get all the way through it. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him four thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Even though this chapter has a lot to do with the Millennial Kingdom, and really that's what it's known for, it also has to do with Satan's final activity upon the earth. Satan is not a god. He is a created being. And his days are numbered. At this point in the Revelation, the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire. We've already seen that. So the attention now turns to the one who was behind their evil reign, which is the devil himself. As the king sets up his kingdom, the first order of business is to remove the chief rebel. And so at this point in history, Satan is bound. And from this point forward, he will no longer be the god of this world or the prince of the power of the air. There will no, will no longer be a devil in this world to tempt men to sin. He will be bound for a thousand years. Verse 1 tells us he will be bound with a great chain, and that doesn't necessarily have to be taken literally as long as we understand the Bible says he is literally going to be bound. This could refer to some kind of restraint suitable for this fallen angel. Jude 6 tells us that there are certain demons that are being kept in eternal bonds. And the word that is used for bonds there is a word that is translated in the King James as chains. But it literally means bands, like bands of iron. Now, Satan really has never been totally free to begin with. God has had him on a long leash 
as we know from the book of Job. But here, he's going to pull that leash in, and at this point, he's going to be locked in the abyss. We have already seen where Satan is kicked out of heaven. But here in this passage, he's going to be bound in the abyss. And rather than being able to deceive the whole world, as chapter 12, verse 9 says, he is now going to be unable to have any further evil influence in the world until the very end of the thousand years. And by the way, for those who believe that Satan is already bound, I would agree with the person who said, if he is bound today, his chain is too long. It is obvious for any sane person that he is not bound at this point. He is still very active in this world. John MacArthur says, All millennialists and post-millennialists generally argue that Satan was bound at the cross and that his binding means that he can no longer deceive the nations and keep them from learning God's truth. But folks, the Bible teaches that the God of this world continues to blind the eyes of unbelievers in this present age. There is nothing in Scripture that would indicate that Satan is already bound. He will be one day. And here's the passage where we see that. But don't fall into false doctrine here. It is only during the Millennial Kingdom that Satan will be bound in the abyss where he will no longer be able to deceive the nations any longer. And this passage is clear on that. And you can be sure that Satan will not be able to get loose during this thousand years until it is permitted by God. The mighty angel will shut him in, chain him up, and seal the entrance. Dr. Thomas says, this threefold means of incarceration is a forcible guarantee that the dragon will be helpless to deceive the nations during the thousand years. Now don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that people born during the millennium will be incapable of sinning during this thousand year period. And as we see here in verse 3, at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is going to be released for a short time in which he will again deceive the nations. And this will lead to another brief rebellion against God. Now these nations are not the same ones that Christ destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. They will be brand new nations that will emerge during the thousand year millennium. But the amazing thing to think about is the fact that even after living in a perfectly righteous environment for a thousand years, men will still choose to rebel against God under the influence of Satan. And we'll see more on that in a moment. But let's move now to a second element, and that is the blessedness of the saints. Look with me at verse 4. And I saw 
thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The mention of thrones here marks the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The supreme ruler of that kingdom will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. He is, of course, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Luke one thirty-two, we see where it predicts that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The inauguration of the kingdom will be the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But he will not rule alone. Notice the word thrones is in the plural in verse 4. He will graciously include his saints as co-rulers with him. And the phrase was given indicates that this is delegated authority. MacArthur says they will rule subordinately over every aspect of life in the kingdom. And being glorified and perfected, they will perfectly carry out His will. The saints will rule and reign alongside Christ. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to the identity, the exact identity of these who sit on these thrones. The problem is that their identity is not completely clear from the text. It just says they sat and judgment was given to them. But who does that refer to? Does it refer to the ones that are described in the rest of the verse, who are obviously a part of that reign, or does it refer to a wider group of saints? Because of the fact that the 24 elders are connected with thrones earlier in this book in chapter 5 and chapter 7. And because they clearly represent the saints as a whole, many want to identify them as the occupants of these thrones, especially the saints of the church age. Others want to limit this to the martyred tribulation saints that we saw earlier under the altar of God in heaven, chapter 6 and chapter 7. But if we go to other passages of Scripture, we can see that there are other saints that are also given similar promises to rule and reign with Christ in addition to the tribulation saints. For example, in Daniel 7, verse 27, we read, Then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven, heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. That seems to indicate that all of the saints of God will be included in this co-rulership. 
In Matthew 19.28, Jesus told His disciples, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the twelve apostles will be prominent in this reign. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, we see this widened out to include other saints of the church age. Paul wrote, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He said, If we endure, in 2 Timothy 2, 12, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Now we saw the same thing in the promises to the seven churches, uh, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. For example, in Revelation 2.26 it says, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. In chapter 3, verse 21 it says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on history. Revelation 5.10 also makes it clear that the saints of God will reign on the earth, not just in a spiritual sense, as the all-millennialists want us to believe, but literally on the earth. It says, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests, to our God, and they will reign where? Upon the earth. So these passages all seem to indicate that all the saints of God, including the Old Testament saints, will be a part of this reign. So really we should equate the ones on the thrones, I believe, with the armies that accompany Christ in chapter 19, verse 14 which include all the saints of God. The last group, though, that will be included will be those who are martyred during the tribulation. And we see that in Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their foreheads and upon their hands. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the last group of saints that is going to be added to the overall group. Here, we see the manner of their martyrdom. They will be beheaded. This is the word pelikizo. It literally means to cut off with an axe. Now, it certainly could be taken literally here, and many believe it will be literal, or it is possible that this is a figure of speech, meaning to put to death or to execute. And we know that the Antichrist will put to death thousands of people who refuse the mark of the beast because they have become believers in Jesus Christ. And these will be included in this thousand year reign with the assumption then that they'll continue on into the eternal state. Notice here that John refers to souls. 
This indicates that they have not yet been resurrected. But they are soon to be because the number of them is now complete and now their deaths have been avenged. That last phrase, they came to life, is from a word that is used all throughout the New Testament to indicate bodily resurrection. Johnson writes, the word anastasis, which occurs over 40 times in the New Testament, is used almost exclusively of physical resurrection. Luke 2.34 is the only exception. He says there's no indication that John has departed from this usage in these verses. This is a literal resurrection here. And Dr. Thomas explains that the phrase, they live, is an ingressive aorist, conveying the force that they came to live or they lived again. And he goes on to say, yet not all acknowledge this rather obvious meaning of the verb because to allow this meaning is in essence to accept that the millennium is a future period on earth. And uh, too many are invested in their theological systems to admit that. That's why the all-millennialists and the post-millennialists have taken this to refer to as a spiritual resurrection, such as salvation, or some other spiritualized or allegorized interpretation. Their arguments, however, do not hold water. Well, this is then contrasted in verse 5 with the phrase, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The resurrection of the lost is going to be described in verses 11 through 15. And there we see the account of the great white throne judgment. We'll get to that next time. But here he describes the first resurrection. And even though it may appear as if this, is, this only includes the tribulation saints from verse 4, other passages of Scripture make it clear that this first resurrection includes all the saints of God. Even though they're not all resurrected and glorified at the same time. In fact, according to Scripture, the first resurrection has three stages to it. There is the resurrection of Christ. That's the first stage. He's called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Then there is the rapture of the church. And then there is the resurrection of the tribulation saints that is recorded in the present passage. It is likely that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the same time as the tribulation saints. In other words, at the second coming of Christ. And you can check out Daniel 12.2 for that reference. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead are raised before the living are changed. But all of that should be considered as part of the first resurrection. And so those who have preceded us in death are going to be raised first, and then those who are raptured are going to be changed. But all of that is part of 
the first resurrection. So as Dr. Thomas writes, the first resurrection must have at least two earlier phases than that phase which comes in conjunction with the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This first resurrection has been called by many names in Scripture. It's called the resurrection of the righteous. It's called the resurrection of life. It's called the resurrection of those who are Christ at His coming. The resurrection from among the dead. The resurrection to everlasting life. And the better resurrection. And then we have the fifth of seven Beatitudes in this book pronounced for those who are part of this first resurrection. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. They are blessed for two reasons. First of all, because the second death will have no power over them. The second death is referred to in verse 14 as the lake of fire. That is eternal hell. Those who are part of the first resurrection will never have to endure the eternal torment of the lost. They will have exemption from the power of the second death. And those who are part of the first resurrection are blessed because they are priests of God and of Christ. As glorified, perfected saints, they will represent Christ in their co-ruling responsibilities. And by the way, the people who live during the millennium in unglorified bodies will live a long time just as in the first pages of Genesis. Isaiah 65, 20 says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. That's a young person, right? 100 years old. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. In the millennium, you will be considered very young when you're 100 years old. And if you don't live at least that long, people will think something's wrong. You know, what, what happened here? People will live hundreds of years during this age. Well, the, the last element that we see here is the blindness of sinners. Now, folks, I admit that this is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture for me to understand. I'm not saying it's difficult to interpret because it's not. I'm saying it's difficult for me to understand how someone who lives in a perfect, righteous environment, ruled by the very Son of God Himself for a thousand years, could ever be deceived by Satan and rebel against the Lord. But that's what this passage says is going to happen. And I believe it because it's in the Word of God, but I don't fully understand that. Why would God turn Satan loose again to deceive the nations? Only in the hidden counsels of God 
Is there an answer for that? But let's read verses 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now this is not the Gog and Magog as we saw earlier. The nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. John just uses the same terms because these armies will be like them. There are some major differences between this and Ezekiel 38 and 39 that make clear that this is not the same group. We won't go through those tonight. But the nations that are at the four corners of the earth at the end of the millennium are nations that have emerged from the survivors of the tribulation. Both Jews who were miraculously preserved by God, perhaps in Petra or some other place, and some Gentiles who managed somehow to survive the seven years. But because of the renewed conditions of the earth during this time, the population will grow very quickly. John MacArthur explains that Though the initial inhabitants of the Millennial Kingdom will all be redeemed, they will still possess a sinful human nature. They will not yet be glorified as the other saints. And as all parents have done since the fall, they will pass that sin nature on to their offspring. And each successive generation throughout the thousand years will be made up of sinners in need of salvation. And many will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But amazingly, despite the personal rule of Christ on the earth, despite the most moral society the world will ever know, many others will love their sin and will reject Him. He says, even the utopian conditions of the millennium will not change the sad reality of human depravity. Enough unrepentant sinners will be alive at the end of the millennium for Satan to lead a worldwide rebellion. Now the phrase, the four corners of the earth, does not mean the earth is flat. It is pointing to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. In other words, they will come from all over the world to join this rebellion. John even says they will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The prophet Jeremiah once wrote, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is true today. It will still be true for those in unglorified bodies during the millennium. One thing this teaches for sure, it teaches that man's rebellion against God 
is not totally dependent on his environment. These will have the perfect environment, just like Adam and Eve had, and yet they will still rebel against God. And Satan will do what he has always done, and that is to deceive people. Even a thousand years of torment in the abyss will not change him. We're not really told how Satan will go about deceiving the nations, but that doesn't really matter. The important thing to note here is that they will rebel, and that this rebellion will be quickly and decisively crushed. Like the Battle of Armageddon, this will really be more of an execution than a battle. Fire will come down from heaven to destroy them. And even though they cover the entire land of Jerusalem, they will not be successful in this rebellion. We'll go on finally to verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will finally join his old cronies, the beast and the false prophet, in the lake of fire. They will have already been there for a thousand years, which, as I said earlier, speaks strongly against the false concept of annihilationism. The description of the lake of fire here is the typical biblical description of hell. The Bible repeatedly affirms that hell will be a place of continuous, eternal torment. Dr. Thomas writes, However the Bible may speak of the future punishment, whether as the lake of fire, outer darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth, a never-dying worm and unquenchable fire, or fire and brimstone, it presents a picture of mental agony and corporal suffering combined in proportion to the guilt of those who have sinned. You know, a lot of people have the, eye, the false idea that Satan is the king of hell. Folks, Satan will be tormented in hell. In fact, the Bible tells us that hell was created for Satan and his demons for their punishment. Well, this marks the end of Satan's evil career. This one, who was originally one of God's greatest creatures in heaven, will end in terrible infamy. And yet, in light of all the horrible pain and suffering he has brought into this world, all creation will now breathe a great sigh of relief. And that leads us right up to the judgment of the lost, the great white throne judgment. And we'll see that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again tonight for your word. It is that more sure word of prophecy. Lord, we know we can count on it. We know it is completely trustworthy and reliable. And Lord, even though these are in some ways frightening things, Lord, we have the joy of knowing that we don't need to fear any of this because we are safe in Christ. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased by 
the shed blood of Christ on the cross. So Lord, we thank you for that. But Lord, we want others to have that same assurance. So Lord, help us this week to live for you. Help us to uh, be a witness for you. Help us to do all we can to accomplish your will so that others might come to know you. And Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful and help us as a church to be effective for you. In Jesus' name we pray.